We've got about anywhere from five to seven topics that we're going to try and uh, cover through today. If we don't get through all of them, that's okay. <coughs> if we get one that uh, attracts more of our attention and we talk about it more, that, that's, that's fine. And so we'll, we'll kind of handle it that way. Uh, by way of review, we're going we're to put into practice today um, <coughs> what we talked about Wednesday night. Here's our definition of emotionalism substitutes emotions and feelings for true spirituality. And we looked at these passages, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 37. If anybody thinks he's a, a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I say unto you are the commands of the Lord. He's interested in what, uh, what God has to say. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 5. Not only are we interested in what God has to say, we're going to try and put it into practice. Our spiritual sacrifices are going to be those that are acceptable to God. And uh, Philippians chapter 4, that passage there, the benefit that we have from that is not some uh, overwhelming emotion, but it's going to be a a confident, hopeful peace that we have based on uh, our knowledge and practice of God's Word. Experiencing emotions or feelings becomes the goal of worship. I didn't make this point Wednesday night, and I would like to, especially as we get into these specifics. Uh, this passage, a familiar passage, 24 and 25, about edification. If you look in these first few verses that come up to it in verse 19, you cannot separate uh, worship or God-centered worship from that edification. Uh, you're drawing near to God. That's what he's talking about there. Through Jesus, you're drawing near to God. And then he goes, and, and then he adds edification in verse 24. And verse 25. And also another point on that. Uh, well, I'll get that here in the next slide. And finally, obedience to scriptures uh, becomes secondary to this new goal of worship. That's our definition. Our dangers are that man replaces God as the center of worship. Uh, we, we looked at these passages that says that God is to be uh, the center of our worship. Uh, and in these worship scenes in Revelation 4 and chapter 19 both, we talked about the idea that nobody was complaining what? What's in this for me, right? Nobody said, I'm not getting anything out of this. But, and and this may be speculation, do you think that any of the worshipers there were receiving any edification from those worship scenes? I I would say so, as they're there standing there in front of God, uh, offering that worship, that they're receiving edification from that. So, So true worship provides edification. And our second major point, emotions are subjective, not objective. So put on your emotional filter, if you will, as we go through these activities and these practices today. Uh, and these are kind of the three points from our last lesson that, that, that need to stick with us. Does the behavior or the activity uh, reflect truly spiritual worship, as we talked about on Wednesday night and what we just reviewed this morning? Does it really reflect truly spiritual worship? Does the behavior or activity keep God as the focus of the worship? And does the behavior activity have a scriptural basis? Uh, is it objective? Can we go find passages for it, uh, for how we're going to do it? Or is it purely a subjective? It's something that, that I think is right, something that makes me feel good. So our specific practices. Any, any questions on that, that first part that we talked about Wednesday, by the way? I know I rushed through it last Wednesday. So. Uh, let's talk about house churches first. And the idea with house churches is not so much that it is an, an emotional behavior, uh, but it provides a vehicle for emotionalism. It gives convenient occasions and opportunities to put yourself in a situation to do emotional type practices, to engage in activities that will provide a special feeling for the worshiper. The justification for this, look over in Acts chapter 2. We've got a couple of passages we will turn to today. 
um, that I won't have up there simply because they're, they're all together and we can look at them uh, pretty closely. Starting in Acts chapter 2, uh, the justification for this is that it follows the New Testament pattern. Uh, beginning in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, uh, it says, and breaking, about halfway through the verse, and breaking bread from house to pa- house. To house. Uh, Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Chapter 8 and verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. How did he do it? He entered into every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And chapter 12 and verse 12. Uh, So we had to consider this. This is Peter. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. There in that house. So, uh, Proponents of house churches, we, we use these passages plus all these others here in the epistles, which simply are, are Paul greeting those, uh, greet the church that is in your house, is the expression uh, that is there. That, that's some of, some of the, uh, the rationale for that. Uh, some of the more emotional rationale for it is it allows a more intimate, a more informal worship. We can have smaller numbers, we can have uh, more mutual edification, everyone can participate more easily. In some cases, uh, women would be able to participate. And it promotes hospitality and a nice family, nice family atmosphere. So those are the uh, advantages uh, of a house church that somebody would uh, put forth. What's the argument against it? Well, let's ask this question. Did New Testament churches meet in houses? Yes, they, they did. They did. And we can give examples of that. Did New Testament churches always meet in houses? All New Testament churches. No, and we can look at these same passages in Acts, uh, particularly here in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Jerusalem church, uh, where the numbers are very large in the thousands that obviously could not meet in a house. And we find them meeting in in areas of the temple. Acts chapter 15, uh, when they come together to discuss the those teachers that would that would push Judaism on Gentiles. The whole church is come together there again uh, in a location that would not be large enough, uh, a house would be large enough to contain. In Acts chapter 16, where, where does Lydia meet to worship when Paul finds her? She's meeting down by she's meeting down by the river. Uh, Acts chapter 19 verses 8 and 9. Paul had been in the synagogue teaching, and when he began to experience resistance there, he moved and he went to the school of Tyrannus and he began preaching there. So there's obviously occasions where uh, we have. Brethren meeting and worshiping, uh, not in houses. So that's that's always uh, not the case. Now the more the more pressing matter, I think, and, and this falls into this being a vehicle for emotional worship. How should we approach God in worship? Because remember, we said the second reason for uh, a house church is it provides more intimate, more informal worship. Uh, well, how should we approach God in worship? And we've looked at uh, at least this passage, this first one in Leviticus 10. Uh, worship must be uh, appropriately reverent. We don't want it to be uh, too informal. After uh, Nadab and Abihu are struck down in Leviticus 10, he says, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Remember, they got caught up in the excitement of all that was happening in the end of chapter 9. And they offered the strange, strange fire, and they did, it without, they did it without thinking. They offered worship without thinking. They did it spontaneously. God expects our best in worship. And if we're informal and a little more intimate, sometimes... We get a little too relaxed. And so, as Malachi writes about 
offering these things to your governor that would be subpar? He goes, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? And obviously the answer is no. And the inference is, I won't accept your worship either if you're not giving me the best that you have. And finally, God will hold us accountable. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When we put ourselves in these informal situations and we offer worship and we find ourselves being relaxed and not putting as much thought into it and we say and do things that maybe we ought not to do, God hears that and God will hold us accountable for that. So there is definitely a danger in being too relaxed. Now, the conclusion of the matter about house churches are is that they are just external quick fixes. Again, we're trying to address internal processes, right? On how to make our worship more spiritual to God. And instead we throw these external things, uh, these external activities that we're going to talk about that are more prevalent in a house church, uh, trying to fix those. Well, the real answer is we have to change the inside. We have to transform ourselves uh, into what is acceptable to God. Any comments or questions on, on house churches? They're simply just a, a vehicle uh, for emotionalism. Let's look at interaction in between uh, worshipers. And by this, we're going to talk about things like uh, hand-holding or facing each other when we sing, uh, applauding each other uh, during the worship. And these are things that, that uh, we may not think are that close to us, but they are creeping in into what we would determine as conservative churches. We'll look at uh, hand-clapping first. Uh, is hand-clapping the modern amen? And you'll find it used for uh, after a baptism. Somebody will offer applause. If somebody makes a good point uh, in a sermon, they'll, they'll offer applause that way. Is it the modern amen? Well, let's look at the differences. Uh, well, and, and also the other things we're talking about, these various sense interactions, these holding of hands, these looking at each other when we sing. Uh, what are they emphasizing? They're emphasizing our, our, our senses, our sight, our touch, uh, ways that we can connect to each other physically. Uh, and it's done under the, uh, the name of, of edification, these passages here uh, for edification that we've looked at most of them, I think, previously. Uh, note that these activities leave out who? They're, they're directed towards who? They're directed towards man, not directed... Uh, towards God. And if, so if you're using that emotional filter we talked about at the beginning, you can already see a, a red flag should be hopping up. Uh, these things are directed more towards man uh, and not towards God. Is hand clapping parallel to amen? Uh, in our, our culture, uh, hand clapping shows approval. I like what you're doing. It shows recognition. You're good at what you're doing. Uh, it shows excitement. It's making me uh, really excited to see what you're doing uh, or a courtesy. I just, I just appreciate uh, the things that you're doing. And it definitely has an entertainment culture uh, to it. And, and frankly, it's nothing new. This is a quote I have from uh, a 1957 version of Encyclopedia Britannica. It says, uh, When Christianity became fashionable, the customs of the theater were transferred to the churches. Paul of Samosata encouraged the congregation to applaud his preaching by waving linen cloths. Uh, applause of the rhetoric of popular preachers became an established custom, uh, like this part of the end, destined to disappear under the influence of a more reverent spirit. Well, that hasn't been the case, has it? That, that encyclopedia Britannica needs uh, updated. Uh, and by some note, this fellow was later uh, <coughs> disciplined by whatever the council was at that time because of, because of this practice of, of creating applause. But you can see here, it was the customs of the theater. 
It's bringing an entertainment culture into it. Uh, again, doing something for man to show approval of man. What does amen mean? Amen, in, in the basic sense of the word, is something that, that is firm or dependable. Uh, it's come to mean more of true or certain. That's how Jesus used it a lot in the New Testament, these passages here in John. Um, and often, uh, when we say, what does amen mean? We'll say, so be it, or, or, or may it be. That's the, that's the idea that we're trying to get across. So those are the comparisons between what hand clapping does and, and what amen does. And there's some similarity there, but, but there is definitely some differences, some baggage that, uh, that hand clapping carries with it. And I think this is the point of applause. Who receives the applause? A man receives the applause. Whether it's a person that's baptized or a person that's done the speaking, what receives the amen? The word spoken. The word spoken. The word spoken receives the amen. And, you know, listening to some, some, some folks talk about this subject on tape as I was preparing for this class, it would be entirely appropriate to give a hearty amen when you see someone come up from the waters of baptism. That's true. That's right what they've done. They've done something that's appropriate. Uh, not inappropriate to add that. Hearty amen. But that's the difference between applause and amen. It's directed at man uh, and not directed at God. Uh, these sense interactions, these things like hand-holding, facing each other when we sing, are they wrong? And we say uh, exclusively and explicitly that they're wrong. Most of these actions, like looking, if, if, I want to look, if I want to divide the room in half and have us sing a song and look at each other, I can't say that that's wrong. I can't find anywhere that tells me in the Scriptures that that's, that that's an authorized practice or a prohibited one. Are they expedient according to 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 10? Or do, are they helpful? Do they allow me to do things better? Well, let's take this example of, uh, of, of singing, collectively facing each other, and see if this really is... Uh, expedient by doing this by facing each other when we sing that I can't find anything in the Bible that prohibits me from doing that let's ask these questions does it make the song more spiritual in our spiritual definition that we've defined does it make it more spiritual if we face each other when we sing does it offer better praise to God by facing each other or does it provide better teaching and admonition because we're facing each other. I think the answer to these questions are, are, are no. It doesn't do anything different as far as a spiritual nature with just sitting there and, and singing together. So the question becomes not what are we doing, it's not wrong what we're doing, but why are we doing it? Who are we doing it for? Uh, we're doing it to excite those senses. First, or 2 Corinthians 5 7 says, For we walk by faith. Not by sight. Not those things we can touch. Not those things we can feel. Uh, but we walk by faith. We walk by spiritual things. Uh, I, f- I find that to be the biggest, uh, the biggest caution when using these sense interactions. Things like holding hands or lifting hands up together, interlocking arms, uh, facing each other when we sing. Uh, there's nothing strictly forbidding that. But what benefit does it provide? Uh, and and that, Yes, Buford. Seems to me that this would be distracting. For me, I know it would be, and I would think it for others it would distract them from your thought, uh, thought mm-hmm. and so forth. You stand there facing someone else, saying, you, "Are you saying to them? Are you saying praises to God?" Exactly. And it's kind of like the point that we talked about at the very beginning that that worship scene in the Book of Revelation. Those folks are offering worship directly to God, but I would argue that they're probably receiving some edification 
uh, from participating in that worship themselves. Uh, that's a good point. Any other comments? <coughs> John? I think about keeping it in order. Uh, we're looking at each other. Who's directing? Is there who, who's, who's mm-hmm. keeping the time on this? And, that type of thing would be one of the, one of the it, it spirals into a, into a real mess, really. Um, how do you arrange everyone? So, because if it, is, if it is a better way to do it, then what? Then we should be facing each other when we sing uh, quite often. We should be doing that to offer better, better worship to God. Uh, and to do that, how do we arrange ourselves so everybody can see everybody else? How do you have a leader? Uh, questions like that are arise become very difficult. Some, somebody's back would be to the song leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that. And, and so it becomes it becomes virtually impossible to technically have everybody uh, offer that worship acceptably. Uh, before we get away from the idea of saying amen, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse sixteen, it talks about uh, uh, otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will uh, how will he be who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen? Yeah, giving them thanks. It was understood at that time, it seemed, but that people said amen. That's the way. That's the way you. We have gotten away from that. Yes, and I, I think that there's a scriptural precedent for saying amen. Well, I, nowadays somebody says amen, folks have well, I think the point, the point that we made Wednesday, these problems that we're addressing with these externals that we're talking about today, are they invalid problems? No, they're real problems. Um, and, and that's certainly one of them. Have, have we forgot how to, or have we got out of the practice of, of accepting other people's worship like that with a, with a hearty amen? But it does say, say amen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say. It, it, gives us a way, it gives us a way to do it. That's right. Any other comments or questions? Those are good, good comments. Uh, let's get back to... Um, all right. Let's talk about uh, spontaneous worship. If there's no other comments on, on this hand clapping, these, these sense interactions. Spontaneous worship, there's no plan. There's no preparation involved. We all just come together. There's no assigned leaders. Uh, we just start the worship service. If somebody feels like something they have to say, they stand up and they do it, whatever... Whatever happens, happens. That's the idea behind spontaneous worship. Again, the argument for this is that it follows the New Testament pattern. Turn over First Corinthians chapter uh, fourteen. This is this is one of those passages that we'll spend a bit of time there. Uh, you should be there if you're if we're just turn where, where Ralph was was speaking from. Um, Again, the idea is that it follows the New Testament pattern. If you look at verse 26, the comment is made there. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Uh, the idea is each of everybody has something that they're going to, to add to this worship. Uh, also in verse 31, For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Again, all can prophesy. The idea is everybody's going to be able to participate. And this is something that would fall under the realm of, of a house church like we talked about. It would facilitate that quite nicely. Uh, the arguments are made that the modern church assemblies have, have too many spectators. You have one fellow up front, and then you have 100, 200, 300 sitting in the back, uh, or sitting in, sitting in the auditorium, not doing anything, just sitting there spectating uh, the worship that is taking place. But if we have unplanned worship, uh, it's a little more intimate, everybody's allowed to participate. 
I, I threw worship planning into this. It's not as big of a subject, and it seems like it's an opposite, but, but the, the goal was the same thing. And I'll tell you what I'm talking about here. Uh, this is, if not a direct quote, at least a paraphrase of what I've heard a, a preacher say before. It allows everybody to feel the full impact of our worship. Now, cue in on those words. Feel the full impact uh, of our worship. And I'm not talking to common things like instead of having two songs, a prayer and a song, that we have the prayer and the reading first and then the songs and the sermon. That's not what I'm talking about. Or even, even coordinated services where we have singing and, and reading together. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, is what I'm talking about well, let me get back here. What I'm talking about are where you're changing things just for the sake of change. Uh, and no service is ever the same, ever the same twice. And I'll talk about that here in, in a minute. Uh, let's talk about spontaneous worship first. What's, what's wrong with this? And, and the big item is, is it just lacks the care and preparation that ensures acceptable worship. And we've looked at these passages this morning. We won't go there again, but that's Nadab and Abihu, again, rushing in to offer that. Uh, strange fire before the Lord. Malachi, people not giving their best. They're too intimate. They're too informal. And we'll be, we'll be held accountable for, the, for that, type of, that type of worship. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is spontaneous worship, is that the pattern? Is that the pattern, is that, the pattern that, that is being described as, as proponents of it? Uh, would suggest. Well, we find out what Paul says in this passage is actually that unorganized worship is what? It's condemned. It's not encouraged. There's problems found with it. There's a lot of problems found with it. Uh, specifically, uh, we're talking about uh, edification. That's the goal of most of this stuff. We find that spontaneity actually inhibits uh, and not enhances edification. Look at verse 12 of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 12. Uh, for uh, even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, uh, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So that's the goal. He's saying edification is a good goal. And as what he's saying in the context before that and after that is, right now you're not doing that. You're not providing the edification. Uh, verse 26. How is it then, brother, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, each of you has a teaching, each of you has a tongue, each of you has a, a revelation... Uh, each of you have an interpretation. Let all things done be done for edification. And the point was, all these people had all these different things that they were ready to jump up and offer this worship for, and nobody was receiving any benefit for it from it because it was all together. It was all confusing. It was chaos. There was no organization to it. Uh, so the, the spontaneity of it actually inhibited uh, proper edification instead of enhancing edification as the argument would be made. Uh, and in fact, we see that Orderliness is encouraged. Now there in 26, we've just read, 27, he says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, and each in turn. Let one interpret. And if there's no interpreter, what's he to do? Just keep silent. He's not, he's not to participate that day. He's not to be the participator that day. Uh, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, what should the other one do? If somebody else gets one, sit still, be quiet. That's right. Sit still and be quiet. Um, for you can all prophesy uh, in verse 33 he says for God is not the author of confusion but of peace and he goes on to say in verse 40 let all things be done decently and in order spontaneity is disorganization uh, and that doesn't help with edification that doesn't help a worship service be successful uh, orderliness is what is going to do that proper orderliness doing things uh, 
in a decent order. And the context suggests, we said another, another reason was that it becomes uh, able for everyone to participate. We see that's not the case here. Specifically, women are mentioned that they're not to be publicly partaking in this uh, worship service. And again, we have people who are having trouble listening and understanding to the worship going on. That was part of the problem. We have maybe visitors in the, in the congregation or unbelievers, as he says there, that, that wouldn't know what was going on. They're not offering uh, participation. I don't think this context concretely suggests that everybody had something to do in this worship service, uh, some public some public part of it. Comments or questions on, on Corinthians 14? Yes, Joel. Um, <clears throat> verse 34 of that, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Mm-hmm. It says, um, But your wing will keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Is that in the in the old law? I mean, is that, is that written somewhere? Or is that just? Uh, I don't know that that's specifically written in the old law. I don't know. I don't know that there's an example of a of a woman doing something like that, other than maybe Deborah, uh, that God had put in a special position. Um, does anybody else know of anything specifically in the old law where a woman is forbidden from? Uh, we we had no example of. I mean, the the priests were were men that offered the law. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more. Uh, we have another class that's devoted entirely to women speaking publicly. Okay. And, uh, but just as a reference, I think when Paul brings this up in First Timothy, and he references the law as well, he goes back to creation. Yeah. And so he just looks it looks at that pattern. Of there, what happened there. Yeah. And, and there there is a reason for that all the way back to creation. That's right. Uh, it was it was the woman who was deceived, uh, not Adam, and so that's that's the reason for that. So, does that answer your question, Mr. Alloway? Any other comments or questions? One thing about it is one uh, one uh, phrase, and uh, back in Genesis chapter three, when uh, God was because of the woman's uh, sin, the first last phrase of verse sixteen says that talking about the husband. Mm-hmm. Would have room over, yeah. the, uh, over the uh, yeah. over so, wife, and that would indicate as, as much so in the, uh, in the assembly of the church as well. Mm-hmm. So the precedent goes all the way back, Eric. You're back to the spontaneous idea. You're you're right on track in that um, the way I've heard folks approach First Corinthians 14, and particularly if a prophet gets something revealed. Um, and you're already prophesying. You're to keep quiet and let him go ahead, and and they'll use that to suggest that that you know it should be this spontaneous speaking, mm-hmm. and you know you shut up. It's my turn to talk. You know, and that's not at all what the text is getting at. And then they'll also what I've heard them do is go to verse 26 and say, uh, well, what does decently in order mean? It, how can we prove that you know decently in order means what you know what we've implemented? And, and the the short answer to that is. Well, look up the word, and you know orderliness has to do with doing things in a planned and uh, yeah. an orderly and decent way. So the words have meaning. So you know and that you can't let them you know let someone take away the meaning of that word. And um, and your your uh, description of this chapter is spot on. Good comment. Anything else? All right. Um. Let's talk about this this worship planning, uh, and again, I'll, I'll give you uh, the example that, that I know of uh, <coughs> firsthand. Uh, the, the care and preparation, and, and this is just the opposite extreme. You're putting too much planning and effort in uh, for the wrong reasons. Uh, 
you put the care and preparation in and you center it on what the worship is going to do for uh, the worshiper. Uh, the situation I was in, they actually, at, at, at the time we left, had a group of two or three men that rotated in every couple of months whose job was to meet outside of the worship assembly and plan what the worship assemblies were going to be like. And it became so convoluted that the worship program had to be put on the back of the bulletin so everybody knew what was going on. And, and more often than not, there was still some confusion as to, to who did what, uh, when. Uh, it's never ever the same service twice. Uh, it always has to be a little bit different. And, and the, the end result is that this progressively just pushes the scriptural boundaries so you can increase this impact uh, of worship on the worshipers. And is what we ended up with is... Um, singing songs while we passed the collection plate. And by the next service, I was putting my numbers up for the song and a fellow came up to me and he said, he said, maybe we should sing uh, while you're singing the song. Maybe we should, should serve the Lord's Supper while we're singing the song uh, to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper. The idea of, of mixing these very uh, vocal or uh, public acts of worship together. Uh, and it's always for uh, what, what the worshiper is going to feel. So again, the, the, the end result is the same, even though they come at it from two uh, entirely different perspectives. Doug? I wouldn't have said here in Limestone County. Uh, basically, the congregation we attended at, and when they started taking the Lord's Supper, the bread, someone broke out leading a song. And it caught kind of everybody off guard, so then our focus. Were you, thinking, you were you thinking about the death of the Lord anymore? No, no, no. We're, we're no. thinking about what, what notes I need to sing here and mm-hmm. what, what, what are the next words because no, no number was announced, no, uh, nothing of that nature. But uh, yeah. it, it seemed like it was something to keep your mind off of what you were actually trying to. Yeah, uh, it had the opposite effect of, of for what it was intended, truly focusing on God. Any other comments or questions? That's, that's something that just sticks in my mind because I've had a personal experience with it. Uh, and it can be it can be pretty dangerous, and you can find it really in what you would call a conservative uh, church. Our God, our gave gave us emotions to produce fruit. Mm-hmm. He gave us love, and that produces obedience. Hope produces pers- <coughs> perseverance and patience. Joy produces sacrifice. And all this, you know, gives yeah. scripture sacred legacy. Sorrow. Uh, produces repentance. Yeah. Uh, fear uh, uh, causes us to de- depart from falsehood. And uh, emotionalism just keeps us from doing mm-hmm. God gave us the emotions to you. Yeah, God, God gave us the proper place of emotions. And wherever we get, which is actually not far from now, we're going to take the last couple minutes and actually look at the right place of, of, of where emotions uh, should be. Uh, let's see if we can get through um, one more. Let's, let me make a point on this. Uh, again, kind of a, a side point. This spontaneous worship can happen outside the assembly as well. We have things like cell phones and internet, text messaging. And so we can spontaneously, without thinking, we can we can shoot something out to 20 of our friends, um, these words of praise or, or superlatives of God, uh, without really thinking about what we're saying. There's not a particular reason we're saying that. It's not that we've studied something. And we've made, we're made to think that it's just something that we, we throw out there real quick without thinking about. Um, and, and it's neat that we can have that large group of, of people that all agree with us. But again, the question we have to ask is, who is the benefit for? Is it for God or is it for man? And just like these other situations we've talked about with spontaneous worship, these informal settings 
are dangerous because they tend toward a more casual attitude in our worship and unintentionally we can become irreverent in our worship towards God. And for every idle word that we speak, we give account of it in the day of judgment. So we need to be careful about things like that. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper and then we'll talk about the place of emotions. And I think there's just one then that we'll have left off. Um, the idea is that, that it's justified as a common meal or a fellowship meal. And again, this is according to the New Testament pattern. If you want to look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, again, we'll spend a few passages in there reading. So it'll be good for you to be over there. Also, Jude 12, the idea of the love feast and the gospel accounts that occurred during the, the Passover supper. Uh, there should be sufficient food and drink to constitute a meal. Everyone gathers informally around a single table, all one big happy family, family closeness. And again, this idea of welcome participation. If, if a woman wants to be able to help with the, with the Lord's Supper, then she would be able to do that because we're all very informal. We're there to, at, a, at a table. And also this idea of just external stimuli. We, we dim the life of the Lord's Supper. These would be things that could happen in a church building like this. Uh, we have congregational choral or solo singing during the Lord's Supper, like we just mentioned. Um, and these emotional human analogies, one that I've heard is, is the idea of, of the, the virus that's sweeping the country and, and they find the, the cure for it and the only cure is your son's blood. And so they take your son's blood. How much do you need? Well, we need all of it. And I've, I've heard that story told several times. It may have even been told here in times past uh, since before I've been here. But to me, that's, that's just a, a real tug at, at human emotions. Um, there's few things that I can find that can compare to prepare my mind for the Lord's Supper other than the discussion of, of what Jesus went what Jesus went through and, and God's love for Jesus and God's love for us. Yes, these are these are emotional things, but uh, in the big picture they just don't compare to what um, what God did for us. <clears throat> What's missing from all these justifications that we're talking about? The Lord's Supper is a meal and this is external stimulus. Again, what's what's missing? Authority. Authority and, and the fact that we're what? We're not talking about the Lord's death in any of this, are we? We're talking about human stories. We're talking about uh, this meal that we can have together and, and the benefits that it gives for us. And it doesn't say anything about the Lord's death. Again, your emotional filter should pick that up uh, pretty quickly. What's the argument against this? What is Paul's purpose in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, in verse 20, he says, What you're doing is not eating the Lord's Supper. You are not eating the Lord's Supper. And he condemns the divisive spirit uh, that you find there. The things that they're doing where people are not waiting for each other. Uh, some's eating a lot. Some are going hungry. And then in verse 23 through 31, passages that we're familiar with, he details what it really is and what's mentioned there. It's almost a word-for-word account of what's in the Gospels. He takes the bread. He gives thanks. He tells what it's for. He takes the, the, the juice. He gives thanks. And he tells what it's for. That's what the memorial is to be. And he says you take care of your hunger at home. That's the main points that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. And so what, what is suggested here that this is a common meal, that's not what Paul was talking about. That's not what he's trying to cover, what, what he's attempting to cover. Uh, bread and juice are the only items mentioned. There's no other uh, mention of any other type of food that would be used in a meal that would make the meal a, a complete or a fuller meal. And Jude 12, what is a love feast? Can somebody tell me what a love feast is? I can't tell you what a love feast is either. I mean, I can give you some suggestions, but there's, there's no real indication in Scripture anyway what this love feast was. And to associate it particularly with a common meal as part of the Lord's Supper is just as much speculation for me to say something else. 
Uh, there's no real evidence that th- this meal, this memorial was used as, as a common meal. Uh, these external, external stimuli, uh, they don't address the, the internal processes that are going on. We made this point before. You can't use something external to fix what, what you need to fix on the inside. Verse 28, let a man examine himself. Let him look inside. Let him search for spiritual worship. Is he going to offer this spiritual worship like we talked about uh, in the first class? Uh, nothing, again going back to these human stories, nothing can prepare us better uh, to, to worship God with the Lord's Supper than what God has already provided with. Uh, the, the Gospel accounts, this passage here, uh, thinking of what God has done for us and His Son and the love that He had for us. Nothing can prepare us, nothing we can devise can come up better than that. I rushed through that because I wanted to make these points about proper use of emotion. Are there any comments or questions? The Lord's Supper is one we could probably spend three classes on. Uh, misuses of it. Uh, but we just don't have time to do that. Comments or questions? Okay, I'm going to skip through uh, preaching content, uh, which would be good. The PowerPoint would be available if you want to look at the points and, and if you want to talk to me later about uh, why I said some of the things that I said. Uh, let's look at the proper place of emotional worship in the time that we have left. Uh, as we said in the very beginning of our introduction, what were some examples of accepted emotional displays in the Bible? Anybody remember? We, I, I brought out two in particular. Uh, that of, of David when he's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. They hadn't done it according to what God had said the proper order the first time. They're doing it right now. So there he is uh, dancing and whirling with all his might uh, to God as, as the ark comes into the city. Uh, so David and the ark. Judah responds to Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8. Again, they're, they're upset when they hear the law and they realize that... Uh, the, short, the shortcomings that they have with regard to the law, they respond emotionally to that. The Ethiopian eunuch rejoices after he is baptized. And we're going to look at this one in particular if you want to be turning to Acts chapter 8. Uh, and Paul at Miletus is another one that we have mentioned. Again, as he's giving these warnings to the Ephesian elders, uh, it's a very emotional goodbye. And he says, I warned you for, for three years, day and night. How did he warn them? He warned them with, with tears uh, about the dangers that would be coming their way. Let's look real quick here in the time that we have left. There's an inferred pattern of, of emotional responses. We can tell when emotional, emotions are acceptable based on, on some of these examples we've looked at. And again, we're going to be talking about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He had a hearing and an understanding of God's word, didn't he? He didn't know it. Philip got up and spoke to him about it, explained to him Isaiah, and he understood to the point where he knew he needed to do what? He needed to obey. He needed to be baptized. There's a conscious acceptance or obedience, or in some case, like uh, Judah with the, the, uh, in the time of Ezra, a rejection. They realized they had rejected in the past of what was heard and what was understood. So, a hearing and understanding of God's word. You find out what God wants you to do. You make the choice of you're going to accept that or you're going to reject that. <coughs> and the result of that. Is the emotional response is not it's not the goal, it's not the goal of what we're doing, but what it's a product of it. What did the Ethiopian eunuch do when he came up out of the waters? He went on his way rejoicing. He'd heard and understood God's word. He had decided to obey that word, and as a product of that, he was excited. He was happy about that. Uh, let me make a couple more closing points, and then I'll let you go. Um, with regard to emotion like that. 
the, the emphasis, and I don't, I don't have them up on the, on the PowerPoint, the emphasis of accepted emotional displays is what? It focuses on me or it focuses on God? It focuses on God. An acceptable emotional display focuses on God and adherence to his will. And emotional displays are still a manifestation of, of my desire, though. I mean, that's what emotion is. It's something that, that's close to me. It focuses on my desire. But what does it say about my desire? My desire is in tune with what? With what God wants. And it goes back to our very first definition of what a spiritual person is. Of worshiping in spirit. That idea of understanding God's word and wanting to be acceptable to God and the confidence that comes from that. Any closing comments or questions? I'm sorry we didn't get through some of the other topics. and I, I probably did more talking than all of us would like. But uh, that was just the nature of it. I'm afraid. Comments or questions? That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you.